Aloha and mahalo, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, what I think about you best be said in the dark. Cam, uh, we better get out of here, or else we'll start talking about this film. Mm, true, very yeah. true. Now, I mean, Christmas is coming, it's the holiday season, and what better way to ring in the festive period than talking about a spy film in Hawaii? Yeah, totally, because this week we're here to talk about the 1952 John Wayne anti-communism spy thriller, Big Jim McLean. Now, you have been queuing this film up for weeks, you've been itching with anticipation to share in this film. This is almost like your long-awaited retort to one of our dinosaurs is missing in some ways. <laughs> I guess so. There's some movies I get a um, disturbing amount of glee about putting in front of you that mm. I have seen in the past. Sometimes it's great things. You know, we did To Catch a Thief for the Patreon, and I was really excited to show you that one because I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, but then there's ones like this where I'd stumbled across them in the past and I'm like, I cannot wait to have another human being I can talk to about this movie. <laughs> and talk, I think we're going to have to. Well, before we get to the letterbox.com, I think it's quite obvious I've never seen this film, so I have no connection to it whatsoever. But you obviously have loved this film. So what's your connection? Well, I actually just have a question before I give my thoughts. Um, what is your background with John Wayne? I haven't got one. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I honestly don't think I've ever seen him in a film. Well, I apologize for this being the first one. <laughs> I, I, I won't spoil what I think about this film, but in terms of John Wayne, I wrote down John Plane. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's fair uh, with this one. Um, so for me, I saw this movie, God, it might have been maybe five years ago, something like that. My dad and I, went on this sort of spree over uh, a period of time watching a lot of the John Wayne classics. And there's a lot of amazing movies out there, like The Searchers, or Rio, Bravo, Red River, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. A lot of these movies are really fantastic. And so we watched kind of all of the greats, and then there was the extras, the ones that no one really talks about that we began to watch as well. And some of them are kind of fun in a kitschy way. And then I remember reading about this one online and it kind of made me snicker because I just thought to myself, this could be a really funny kind of campy movie to watch. And I think it was selling on Amazon for like $5 or something like that. So I bought a copy and my dad and I watched it and um, it's not good. It's a total <laughs> red scare propaganda. Yep. It's really crazy. And it was one that after I'd seen it, I was like, well, I mean... I don't remember if my dad made it through awake. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me if he, you know, the second half, because the second half gets a, a little weighed down, as we'll talk about, I think, uh, going forward. But um, the second half. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, we OK, well, we'll see how this goes. Uh, we may be uh, disagreeing on that. But um, yeah, so like I just came out of it being like, like, that was insane. Like this was an insane movie. And there's no one in my little world who had seen Big Jim McClane until now right yeah i don't think there will be anyone that will has ever seen that film until now apart from maybe us and your dad 
Yeah, it's not one of the more well-known John Wayne movies. No, and I think we'll, we'll get into the background in a minute, but for those who haven't experienced, and it's an experience, I will say, Big Jim McLean, just a poster, just a picture of John Wayne running with his shirt off looking completely confused, is priceless and well worth the $5 admission fee to get in to watch this film. But here's your letterbox.com synopsis. Big Jim McLean, filmed in Hawaii and filled with excitement. <laughs> House Un-American Activities Committee investigator Jim McLean and Mal Baxter come to post-war Hawaii to track Communist Party activities, even though belonging to the party was legal at the time. They are interested from everything from insurance fraud to sabotage of a U.S. naval vessel. Yeah, although the bit about it being legal at the time is a, it feels like they were inserting that to kind of Almost as a way of underlying the absurdity of the movie. Yeah, and and also if you if you're speaking in terms of historically, Hawaii wasn't even a state at that point. Yeah, it was just a territory, so it, it had its own governance. So I don't know why the House of Un-American Committee decided it was going to go to Hawaii. Maybe they just wanted a holiday, perhaps, or just the filmmakers who made this movie wanted a holiday. Perhaps. But uh, I, I, I need to talk about this film with you, Cam. So I think we need to really get to the uh, how it was made first. And then let, let's talk about it. Yeah. How much do you know about the Red Scare um, of the late 40s and 50s? Only, I think, through my experience with a couple of films we've touched on in the past. Um, I hear the word McCarthyism bandied around a lot. I'm not sure I know exactly what it means. It's not something that was like taught in your school system or something that was very present. No, I don't think we had the same sort of knee-jerk reaction to it all. We, we didn't have as much of an issue. We had our own communist problems here, I, I seem to recall. But I don't think we had a whole division in our government set out to hunt them down. Right. Okay. So a little bit of background for maybe younger listeners or just people who this wasn't something that they were really taught about. Um, so the Red Scare was um, an event that happened over from 1947 to about 1957. And it was tied into Senator Joseph McCarthy, who um, was a senator out of Wisconsin, who led this movement to basically um, reveal people who had communist or fascist ties in society or in organizations, anyone who could be potentially dangerous to the American way of life. And it was a very... um, frenzied period where there was a lot of finger pointing and one of the people that was actually quite involved with it was John Wayne he became a bit of a uh, puppet for the Red Scare movement and um, there was also separately also the House Un-American Activities Committee which is going to play a large factor within this movie and I think a lot of people tie that specifically to McCarthy and him being involved with it, which wasn't really the case. It was obviously operating at the same time and doing a lot of the same work he was doing, but he himself wasn't actually working through them. This organization was created in 1938, also for the same purposes of, you know, um, investigating disloyalty and subversive activities in citizens and organizations. And um, they were kind of operating at the same time, working on the same thing. And you also had John Wayne, who obviously is a really following this McCarthy craze and wants to also take part in what he thinks is protecting U.S. interests. And so he played a role in the creation of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals in 1944. 
This was an organization created to protect the film industry from communist and fascist infiltration. And so they would be going through movies looking for potential hidden messages and all of that sort of thing. And John Wayne would become the president of this organization in 1949. And he was a strong enforcer of the blacklist, which saw a lot of Hollywood talent kicked out of their jobs, barred from their industry because of, you know, perceived links to communist parties, you know, so much as like attending a meeting or something like that at one point in their lives. So it was a really crazy period of time and a lot of finger pointing, a lot of people having their lives completely upended. And um, it's one I remember um, the director Elia Kazan, who did On the Waterfront uh, and several other films, uh, he did, I believe, also A Streetcar Named Desire. He was given a, a honorary Oscar in the, I'm going to say, 90s, probably the late 90s. And he was someone who had also named names and had people put on the blacklist. And when he was given the Oscar, I remember watching him give the speech and the crowd was very visibly like 50% applauding and 50% refusing to stand up or acknowledge him during the speech. Like the wounds of this period were st still lingering quite strongly when it came to like the 1990s and he was being presented with an award. So the gist of it is a bunch of a-holes. Yeah, it's one of those causes that I'm sure to those involved in the 40s and 50s seemed like a very righteous cause that now... Looking back on it, you know, from where we stand in history, it seems completely absurd. And these guys just uh, pretty cringeworthy, pretty cringeworthy bunch. And I mean, McCarthy really, you know, was leading the charge on this. And he ended up dying in 1957 um, from um, hepatitis. And it kind of just declined around that era. So it did, you know, end in the in 1957 around there, but did a lot of damage for a period of time. And a lot of the movies... Movies that won't acknowledge it, like this movie's all about the Red Scare, but you can watch a lot of 1950s movies, and a lot of them have a sort of, well, they're very safe, they're very family friendly, they're very um, working right down the center of the line, and it became a period where a lot of movies were almost terrified of being targeted, so they became very sanitized in a way, and so when you did find ones that worked in messages, they had to be incredibly clever, because eyes were on them stronger than ever. And then you can have a film like this where there is a very clear message, but it's just against these people. Exactly. Yeah. So John Wayne really wanted to make a statement about the importance of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And so this was the first movie that emerged from his independent film company, um, Batjack Productions. Now, Batjack was named after a film he'd made called Wake of the Red Witch. It was a reference to that. And here, though, it's referred to as the Wayne Fellows Productions um, which was the case at the time because he co-founded the group with a guy named Robert Fellows, who was a producer. Robert uh, Fellows left shortly after, but Batjack did produce a lot of John Wayne movies. Like, the majority of his work that came out post-1952 were Batjack productions. And he brought on, really, a group of people who he was comfortable with. So well, he hang had on, a director. Hang on. I'll, I'll stop oh, yeah. again, just to uh, fill in a blank, because, you know, we, we, we gave him information about maybe the, the Red Scare, but this is my first John Wayne film. Yeah. So where is this falling for John Wayne? Oh, in his career? Yeah. Has he had his big films, or is this the, you know, upswing, downswing? Where are we? Where are we? Right. Okay. So 1939 
um, John Wayne is leading into that sort of a struggling Western actor. He's doing a lot of B Westerns, a lot of, you know, hour long programmers that would show before the big main feature in your theaters. Mm -hmm. But in uh, the end of the thirties, a director named John Ford came along and John Ford really liked John Wayne and cast him in a movie called Stagecoach, which became a massive breakthrough. It was a huge hit and it really did launch John Wayne into the stratosphere. And so really from, 1939 building into the 40s and 50s John Wayne becomes one of the big icons of Hollywood movies and he's at this point made a lot of the classics that would continue onward some of the ones I named up front like Ford Apache Red River all of these films have all come out so it's like he is at this point a massive icon which made him all the more dangerous really as a big proponent of the Red Scare Mm. so um yeah he is like at this point think of like I don't know Tom Cruise in the 1990s. Oh, so he's not okay because Tom Cruise is still going strong. I would argue, uh, maybe not the dark universe, but John Wayne went strong really to the end of his career. Okay, okay, so yeah, he's 90s Tom Cruise. I and I can see Tom Cruise with his shirt off on a jet ski. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and just massive movie stars, right? Yep, fine. I'm with you. Thank you on behalf of the audience who don't know John Wayne. <laughs> no, it's fair. So um, he brought in the director, Edward Ludwig, who was a just long working director who'd done countless shorts through the 20s and early 30s and then done a lot of B movies. And he directed a couple John Wayne movies beforehand called, uh, there was The Fighting Seabees, which was a World War II propaganda film. It's not bad. And also Wake of the Red Witch, which is more of a adventure story that I believe John Wayne battles an octopus in. So you can check that movie out for that. <laughs> Already sounds more exciting than some of this, but keep going, keep going. Yes. <laughs> and um, they had a script that was really cobbled together by a lot of people. So you had a story by Richard English, who had just done a lot of B-movies. He had done the story for um, Copper Canyon, which was a Western starring um, Hedy Lamar. So yeah. that was the most notable credit that I really found for him. And so that was a story credit, but they brought in... Um, a few writers to flush it out. You had um, James Edward Grant, who'd done the John Wayne films, Angel and the Badman, Sands of Iwo Jima, and Flying Leathernecks. Of that trio, Sands of Iwo Jima is the really good one, and John Wayne got a Best Actor nomination for that film. And they also brought in Eric Taylor, who had done a lot of pulp magazine writing, and also movies like um, some of the universal horror films, like Son of Dracula and Black Friday. He also wrote some of the Dick Tracy film adventures of the era like Dick Tracy and Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. Um, I've watched actually those Dick Tracy movies. They're really fun and they're only about an hour. So I recommend them to people looking for kind of um, fun programmer entertainment. But this movie, like when I tried to find details about who wrote what or the actual creative production of this movie, there's just like nothing there. Uh, It's just kind of lost to the sands of time. And it does kind of feel like a movie cobbled together by a group of people. One bit of information I found out about it is that when they re-kind of made it for overseas, they turned it into a completely different film. Yeah, yeah. For a marijuana uh, scare movie, yeah. that's uh, It just goes to show that, you know, dubbing can do a lot when it comes to these sort of things. <laughs> and there's even on the American version, there's a lot of weird dubbing. But again, sorry, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, another credit I'll just mention about this movie, and I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later, 
Um, the writer Stephen Vincent Bennett is also credited on the film for his story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, which was a 1937 work that we can talk a little bit about the content of in the next few minutes because I haven't read it, but I did the research, um, you know, the, the Wikipedia synopsis reading of what the basis is. My mom read it, she said, when she was in school, but it's not something I was familiar with. But it ties very strongly thematically into the movie, so strongly that obviously they're quoting it and felt compelled to also include that in their writing credits of the film. Well, I mean, do you have any more on that? I'll talk about the synopsis when we actually talk about how it's used in the movie. Okay, but, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then just a couple anecdotes. Um, so the actress, Nancy Olsen, who is um, you know John Wayne's love interest in the film, she said she hated the script for this movie, but uh, she loved the idea of working with Wayne and spending six weeks in Hawaii. Shocking. So she signed on to do it. Shocking. And thought. <laughs> Hated the script. What? This is like John Wayne's favorite stuff, apparently. <laughs> she was a staunch liberal Democrat, too. And she said she often argued with Wayne about politics, but would let him have the last word. It's like, okay, I guess. Okay, I'm warming up to her already. Keep going. Yeah. Her theory was that the movie would be a flop because it's obviously such a hysterical... And I mean that is in like it's driven by hysteria <laughs> type of movie <laughs> that she just thought it would flop. That would be the end of it. And she'd get to spend six weeks in Hawaii, get to work with a movie star that, you know, is obviously a big deal at the time. Maybe be good for her career. And um, yeah, uh, well, so anyways, the movie did flop kind of like it was an underperformer, not one of John Wayne's biggest hits. But. It aired on TV apparently a lot. So she said she got a lot of people approaching her about that movie later in the years where she assumed it would just disappear after 1952. That's uh, that's one strange ghost to follow you around. And you said that uh, she thought... Well, she, you said about hysterical, and I, I certainly felt hysterical after watching it. So, <laughs> And this movie was also rushed into release to beat uh, two other John Wayne movies. The Quiet Man, which is more of a um, romantic comedy set in Ireland that was actually a huge hit that year uh, and also is regarded as one of his um, really popular all-time movies. It's shown in the uh, in the film E.T. Spielberg has a whole tribute to The Quiet Man in that movie. And it's a movie that was also directed by John Ford, who was kind of John Wayne's mentor. And I'll be talking, I think, a little bit about John Ford as we go forward. Um, but... That is the better movie than this. So The Quiet Man showed up in theaters after this film, Big Jim McLean. There was also a movie called Jet Pilot that John Wayne did that was a Cold War thriller, kind of a spy thriller. I have it on our list to tackle further down the road. And it was ultimately delayed to like 1957. It sat on a shelf somewhere. So at the time, though, uh, Big Jim McLean was rushing to beat these other movies to the cinemas. But it didn't do that well, though, altogether. Well... It did well enough, Scott. Its hmm. budget was eight hundred thousand dollars, and its box office was two point six million. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's if you if you try and translate that to now money, I guess that's a pretty good return. Yeah. So, the top three for the year. Number one was the Greatest Show on Earth. Have you ever heard of the Greatest Show on Earth? I think we've mentioned it before, or you've mentioned it before, maybe. Maybe it was the nineteen fifty two Best Picture winner at the Oscars. And it's often considered the worst ever Best Picture winner. It was a circus drama 
in which it's just a lot of it's it's an ensemble cast of <laughs> actors um playing various roles within a circus uh jimmy stewart is like a clown charlton heston's in there i think is maybe the ringleader i don't remember uh it's a lot of kind of melodrama and footage of circus acts is it one of those things where people didn't really get to see circus acts so it being in the cinema was of note because you got to see a circus act whilst you saw a, a picture I would think so that would have been the appeal because it is that big screen kind of technicolor look at a circus. It, it's pretty beautiful footage, a lot of the movie, but one that has not aged particularly well. Um, number two for the year was The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which I've never seen. I really don't know anything about. And number three was High Noon, which was a um, really impactful Western that uh, starred Gary Cooper. And really drew the ire of John Wayne. I don't know if you know the gist of High Noon. It's about a sheriff who a team of outlaws are coming to his town and he needs help to defend the town. And all the townspeople back away. So he's left as the lone man to restore order to this town. And this movie was so controversial. John Wayne was furious about it. He felt it was un-American that the people, the townsfolk, would not side with the sheriff in helping save their town. And he would later make... Um, Rio Bravo as a response to this movie. I mean, clearly John Wayne has never been in a crowd when a panic situation goes down. I mean, these days people are everyone's just on their phones, but a uh, man, I've seen fights in real life and everyone's just like, oh, I'm going home. <laughs> oh, we'll see ya. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, number four for this year was The Quiet Man, which I referenced a little bit earlier. So um, yeah, John Wayne had a decent year in 1952. This movie also beat a film called Invasion USA, which was another Red Scare film of the era. So there was a number of these plugging up the Cineplex. <laughs> was there any surfing in that one? I don't think so. I don't think it was set in Hawaii. <laughs> Instantly inferior. I'm glad we picked Big Jim McLean. Yeah. Critics were not kind to this movie either. Shocking. It was one that was... <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't normally quote critics, but I will this time, just because there's a fun little quote from New York Times reviewer Bosley Crowther, where he closed off the review by saying, but the, <laughs> but the overall mixing of cheap fiction with a contemporary crisis in American life is irresponsible and unforgivable. No one deserves credit for this film. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo, sir. Read that again at the end when we get to the knock list, maybe. Sure, sure. Mm. Well, Cam, have you got your grass skirt on? I do. I am dancing the hula. Oh, man. Let's uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Now, I think I should go first. Yeah, I agree. You are, you are itching to hear. And I'm itching from watching this film. I, I, I feel like you slipped something into my cup of tea. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's an LSD trip of a film and not a good trip. This is a bad trip. This is, I, I mean, there's it's propaganda. It's so, so heavy-handed. Its lead is as wooden as, I, I don't know, a bench. Uh, you could pick a better thing to compare <laughs> it to. Like, there's nothing to tie yourself to. And so you're left with just this patriotic propaganda vehicle that's meant to be, like, all hail John Wayne. But I don't like John Wayne in it, so I, all hail America. I'm not sure I want to do that either. And so I, <laughs> I'm left sitting there going, "What am I watching?" And like by the time the second watch rolled around, I was I was clawing my own eyes out. And <laughs> what makes this worse is there's a spy plot 
in this film. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about it. And I cannot make heads or tails of this spy <laughs> plot. <laughs> I've tried. I, I, was ch- I wrote a little like flow chart of the story to try to figure out who was who and doing what. I think it's to do with communists trying to use a bioweapon on labor workers in Hawaii. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, now the bioweapon, are you referring to the author they go to see who talks about the weapon where it's going to turn people into like exact replicas of each other? No, there's another okay. guy who's like a microbiologist later on, and he's he's developing some sort of um, illness that he can unleash on dock workers right. to create a labor shortage. Diabolical communists. But they also, in that whole scene, refer to like a guy who handles rodents. I got the impression they were just going to unleash rodents on the docks. That's what I mean. We haven't got a bloody clue. I, I I don't I I this I'm I'm man I don't know with this film this is this is your revenge clearly because it's one of those films I I I almost don't want to talk about but I also have a ton to say about it um, that's good yeah but you know my overall takeaway is it's a poorly made nightmare <laughs> yeah I I can't really disagree with you too much. It's a movie that is so specifically of its moment and only with the people who really are siding with the Red Scare are going to get anything out of it in this particular point in time that you flash forward like a handful of years. This movie is completely irrelevant. It's kind of like watching Reefer Madness now, Mm. but taking it seriously. We're like, yes, marijuana is evil. Uh, and obviously what they're saying in Reefer Madness is accurate. Have to have that sort of approach to communism while watching this movie and like the threats of communism. And I, I know there's still, you know, look, even nowadays, look at the news when there's some sort of, you know, Obama healthcare, and you'll see people screaming communism in US news, right? Like there's always that sort of, that's always on the verge of the discussion with a lot of political decisions we see. So I don't want to say that like the threats of communism are gone in this movie is just a complete product of its time in that regard. But like the abject hysteria of this movie is something that's very hard to relate to. Well, I mean, in terms of the the talking about communism now, that's just a, a conflation of communism and socialism. People are just confusing the two. And that's, yeah, like a read a, go read a book for Christ's sake. But back to here, I, You look at, say, something that's of of its time, say, Triple X, something we covered recently. That is very 2002. That's far more approachable than this nonsense. I could show this to your dad. I could show Triple X to your dad and your dad would be like, okay, I get it. And I bet even your dad laughs at this film. Oh, yeah. My dad was uh, laughing at a lot of the moments through this movie. And let's just put aside the politics of the movie for a second. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll kind of say that, like... As a movie, if you're expecting me to sit there for 90 minutes and actually absorb this movie, there's kind of kitschy stuff I enjoy. Just like the fact that we got John Wayne investigating a spy caper in Hawaii is interesting to me. That's different than a lot of his movies, which tended to fall into westerns or war films. There's, you know, he does outlier stuff, but nothing really like this where he's playing kind of a, you know, government private eye almost type, right? It's kind of a little bit of that hard-boiled detective kind of story. Not a lot of John Wayne movies like that. So there's a novelty factor there I kind of can enjoy. Um, 
the romance, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is absurd. But I like the chemistry between him and Nancy Olsen. It's sort of a His Girl Friday kind of thing. They've got a little bit of a banter. So, like, there's little bits throughout that I kind of find fun. But when it comes to the spy plot stuff, what I'm essentially supposed to be appreciating from the point of view of this podcast, it's either incredibly convoluted and confusing or it's just really boring to watch. Like, I find the second half of this movie, which gets very plot-focused, a crushing bore. And it's one where, like, when I was sitting rewatching it yesterday, the first half I was like, oh, this is, like, goofy in a lot of spots. Like, I can kind of see how I could get campy enjoyment out of this. But then that second half rolls around, and I'm just like... <laughs> I'm watching paint dry. Well, I... I was too busy saluting a, a sunken ship as the national anthem played, so I, I probably wasn't paying that much attention at that point. But uh... yeah, we have this moment where the movie just stops dead, so John Wayne can go to the Pearl Harbor Memorial and salute those who died, you know, at the um, entrance essentially of America into World War II. Mm. And like the sequence itself, this is what uh, you know, seven years after the end of the war. So like, I think to a lot of viewers, it would have meant something just to see John Wayne doing this on screen. And I don't necessarily hold it against the movie for having it. It feels weird. Like it's very jarring. It's not the sort of thing you would do in a movie now, but what I find very uncomfortable about it is the way it's aligning like their sacrifice with what the house on American activities group is trying to do, which is, um, very, very problematic. It's aligning something that um, was a very sad, tragic event that led, obviously, to America joining the war and ending World War II with this. That is pretty grim. Well, this film is trying to plug into that patriotism. Yeah. That's that's basically what it is. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see it. Your, you know, John Wayne, Jim McClane is... Is Mr. As American as Apple Pie, as that film slogan once went. You know, he's like, oh, gee, well, I, I wouldn't want to get in the fight unless you push me. Uh, that kind of guy. And he's like doing uh, horrible, horrible, like, uh, voiceover work where he's just <laughs> in the middle of a scene. It reminded me of, uh, of David Lynch's Dune. Oh, yeah. Where like a scene would stop and you just get the guy's face and he'd be like, I better... I better think about this now. He's he's looking at me like this. Hmm. And then the scene would come back in and the guy would start talking again. You just think, was there any of this necessary? And eventually I was convinced that this actually is a David Lynch film. And it's just a massive <laughs> subversion of a ton of tropes. Well, I, Maybe I wish it was a David Lynch film. There's a moment where his partner, played by James Arnest, dies. And we have John Wayne going to identify the body. And we get this voiceover where he's like, obituary and he proceeds to like write this man's obituary in voiceover and it's i think intended to be a sad moment but i was laughing my head off <laughs> yeah it's something like yeah he had a bullet in his stomach from a grenade made in czechoslovakia <laughs> it's like he's never said the word czechoslovakia before czechoslovakia and it's like what who is and i think this is one of my ultimate questions i was going to bring it up at the end but i think it just flows now who is this film for and I, I think I know the answer, unfortunately. But that's a small portion of America. Ye well, yeehaw, who indeed. Is it for? I guess on one hand, it's speaking directly to people who are concerned about 
the Red Scare and the potential and the potential communist threat. So like for them, they're going to be in the bag. But I also wonder if it's being used um, as a way to draw in people who love John Wayne movies, and there are a ton of them in this point in time, um, and essentially persuade them with the messages of this movie. Mm -hmm. Like I think it may have been more of a delivery system to pass on the messages of what you know McCarthy and the um, you know the House of Un-American Activities Commission was pushing into your average moviegoer. I mean, this this film is so close to Orwellian storytelling in its own way. Like, there's a scene where these these parents, Mama and Papa, turn in. <laughs> they turn in their own son for being a suspected communist. That is 1984, man. That is scary ass shizzle. And they are Polish immigrants as well, so they're people who have come to America looking for a new life and they're embracing american values by turning over their son yeah it's and then, uh, and then very, hang on yeah. no 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 don't and then john wayne turns around and goes like thank you for your service and then <laughs> walks out the building and the u.s national anthem starts playing <laughs> it's just like what is this what is this meant to convince a, a guy in the cinema to be like heck i'm gonna turn my daughter in she once went on a date with a guy who voted for a democrat I mean, it's crazy, but a lot of people did name names and point fingers during this era. What a joke, man. I, I'm i so glad I watched this film, and yet I hate myself. Um, Let's talk about John Wayne. John Plane. Yeah. I, I can't believe he was a, a successful leading man based on this. I, I actually reached out, on, I reached out on Twitter for some other films, and you've given me some, and Twitter has given me some to go and watch to maybe cleanse my palate of big jim mclean because i'm sure he has a he has some good films oh yeah yeah he does this just isn't one of them yeah i mean the thing about john wayne is he's a movie star and he's not someone who's hugely versatile in his performances but it's about finding the right directors who know how to use him john ford knew exactly how to use john wayne and there were several others who just could really lock in it to how to get the most out of him. And he can be an incredibly charismatic presence on screen. This is a movie where, I mean, this is a fevered passion project for him in a lot of ways. He's, mm. It's his first production himself. It's a director who's kind of a journeyman. So I don't think you're essentially having the best talent presenting him. And also John Wayne, when left to his own devices. And later in his career, he would have a lot of hits, but he would work with a lot of less prestigious directors and a lot of those performances are i should just say less interesting than some of his other work so um i don't regard this one as one of his great performances i don't know like i enjoy his charisma maybe more than you do like just scenes where he's you know with nancy olsen like i'm seeing a little bit of that star wattage coming off of him but the movie is so confused and the character is so ridiculous that i don't know that there was much he could do um, I just want to note, too, that I appreciate that your John Wayne impression sounds like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's uh, that's probably accidental. But, like, I, <laughs> what I'm supposed to be watching is this, um, you know, all-American, you know, track athlete used to be in the military. Now he's, a, he's in the House of Un-American, whatever it is. And, you know, his best scene is when he's standing there saying nothing whilst he has a, a voiceover that's like, any see any background she has becomes the foreground, and it's just like, 
what is this nonsense? It's absolute drivel. He's not even acting. It's him in a voice booth talking over himself staring at the screen. I don't know. I, I Maybe I, I should lay off him. Maybe it's just not his film. I mean, it's tough to judge him in terms of his overall career off this movie. I'll say that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I Actually, yeah. I forgot to mention. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll trail back John Wayne in a second, but just in terms of the sort of the propaganda side of things, and you didn't mention this in your intro, and I was genuinely thinking you were going to do it because it didn't like you think of say like the House on Ninety Second Street, yeah, which is you know our obligatory reference to House on Ninety Second Street. We have to make it every week. That was a propaganda film that said to you it was a propaganda film. It even was funded partially by the FBI. It was upfront about it. Yep, this is not upfront about it, and I was waiting for you to tell me that it was funded, at least partially, by the House of Un-American, or the Committee of Un-American Activities, or whatever it's called. But there's, you made no mention of it, but it feels like it clearly is. Well, the filmmakers were clearly working with them, because they have a um, text credit at the end of the movie acknowledging that it's based on files and facts coming of facts coming out of <laughs> the uh, yeah, out of their offices. So, um... It's definitely a bit of a relationship going on, but I don't think there was any funding or anything. Yeah, I, that that does genuinely surprise me because it, it feels like it's a recruitment piece. They do actually um, have members of the um, organization at the start of the movie. When you're seeing that footage where they're talking about the group and what they're trying to do, a lot of those are real members. So kind of like 92nd Street in that sense. It is, yeah. Um, and... The movie does, it's not a docudrama, because the thing about 92nd Street was it was a full-on docudrama, whereas this movie is sort of, it has its feet in so many different places, because mm. it is in some ways kind of a, I guess, private eye kind of film, um, but also you do have like people kind of playing themselves, like the police chief who shows up, Dan Liu, he was the police chief, so like they're kind of working in real elements and just real people throughout the movie, but also making this big kind of pumped up star vehicle starring like one of the biggest movie, you know, celebrities of the time. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not kind of playing it grounded the way that um, 92nd street tried to. Well, I, I guess this is more just sort of a testament to uh, giving someone too much creative power. Uh, it feels like John Wayne wanted to have his own film and do what he wanted with it. and didn't have anyone saying, mm, maybe pull back on that, or maybe we should do more of this. I would say that's very much the case, yeah. And I think also it would have been maybe foolish on their parts to make this movie like 92nd Street, where it is just all unrecognizable actors and just gritty and downbeat, because clearly John Wayne is going to get so many people into a theater that its message can actually be, you know, its evil, evil message can be shown to countless people. And, like, John Wayne's politics were a nightmare. You know, there's so much reckoning now with the legacy of John Wayne, um, you know, especially in recent years with a lot of the racist things he said and toxic politics like this. Like, in, you know, Canada and I'm sure the UK, John Wayne is not viewed as this kind of towering icon, no. Um, he's very recognizable. Hmm. We know his movies. They showed on TV when I was a kid. But it's not like when you ask, for example, if I ask my friends how many of them have watched John Wayne movies, you're not going to get many takers. They may have seen one or two somewhere along the road, but it's not, he's not a movie star that people really worship here. 
But in the U.S., he's much more of an industry where, you know, there's still like John Wayne magazine. His image is everywhere. You set, you see merchandise all over the place. So like the image of John Wayne is quite important um, in the U.S. So like I think they have a lot of reckoning to do just with his past. Whereas, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's so many hugely problematic movie stars that I, I don't know which ones to cancel and which ones to just go Okay, well, product of their time, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in the business of cancelling anyone. I don't think that's quite right. I think you you can separate art from artist, or at least personally I can. But, I mean, what the only thing I will say you do get in this film over House on 92nd Street is, of course, you get to see John Wayne and Nancy Olsen on a hydrofoil whilst John Wayne is shirtless, which is a highlight. Those are the moments that I really perked up that I enjoy because, yeah, you have that bit where he's like, all, you know, all week we work hard, but on weekends we cut loose. <laughs> it's like, what? And we get this. I was waiting for Loverboy <laughs> to start playing. Everybody's working <laughs> for the weekend. Oh, my God. Is that a fan edit we have to put online now? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, like stuff like that is insane. Like those are the moments I enjoyed where it's like, okay, now we're just going to cut to John Wayne on the weekend on a hydro, uh, hydrofoil and just like hanging around Hawaii. Like that's the sort of goofy stuff that I find fun in this movie. Well, speaking of maybe the good stuff, I will point out how I write my notes is I have my initial thoughts, my likes, my dislikes, and then final questions. My likes are a lot smaller than they usually are. Right. That's all I'm going to say. What I did like, Cam, is I liked Nancy Olsen. Yeah, she's fun. Like, she had shown up in the movie Sunset Boulevard um, a couple years beforehand. She's really strong there. And, like, this is a dead-end role. Like, this is a love story that happens over the span of about three minutes. They go from, like, meeting to being engaged. It's really ridiculous. But she's so much fun. And, you know, I referenced His Girl Friday earlier. Like, they have this kind of bantering energy... I like how she gets involved in this case and she feels like she's like adding value. It doesn't feel like, you know, so many movies of this era would just have the tag along female character who doesn't contribute a lot. It feels like she's actually fun and injecting energy. Well, it makes perfect sense that John Wayne goes all the way to Hawaii and then falls in love with the first white woman he sees. Yeah. And also we see sequences where he's intimidating people and they are all not white. Mm hmm. Yeah, but that's in the unlike pile, which we'll get to. But yeah, so Nancy's great. And, you know, there's scenes later with um, Veda Ann Borg, who plays Madge, uh, which I also liked her character as well. And they're like almost playing off each other. And, and she's not intimidated by the other woman. She's actually just sort of she understands that Jim McLean is a professional and he's doing his job. And that's actually quite refreshing. There's none of this like female jealousy nonsense that you get in more well, this is a poorly written film, but other poorly written films. Yeah, I really liked Madge as well. Like, I thought that character was so much fun. You know, this is one of those follow the breadcrumbs types of movies where we get, you know, so many leads and so many characters pop in and out, most of them with not a lot of consequence. Mm. But she shows up as, you know, she's running a boarding house for sailors and it's tied to a missing person they're looking for. And she is just like, again, so much fun. She's one of those people that you cast her in a character role and suddenly this whole character pops off the screen you have this whole sense of the inner life of this person there's a sequence where she has you know a tip that might help them and but she demands a, a date with john wayne's character jim McLean, 
as payment. And so they go out to dinner. And it's like fun moments like that that, look, this is not good filmmaking or storytelling. But like the actors are fun in these moments. And you can kind of sit there and enjoy the scene just as a island, you know, amidst a lot of uh, very problematic stuff. Was, was that a pun? Yes, it was actually. Yeah, good stuff. Good work. Um, I, I liked her little nickname for, for John Wayne because of his height when she first meets him, although she's quite tall herself, our Madge. Mm-hmm. Uh, she first meets him and she you know, asks his height and he says, oh, he's 76 inches of, uh, of, of prime beef. <laughs> oh, 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 John Wayne. Um, and yeah, she calls him 76 for the rest of the film, which I think is cute. But I, I did some calculations, Cam, and would you like to know what our nicknames are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are 68. Okay. Yeah, but I'm quite proud of mine. Oh, I know where this is going. 69, baby. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> That's extreme. <laughs> I I did laugh when Madge says, 76, that's a lot of men. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to climb that tree. <laughs> well, it's so weird to me that, like, this whole movie, they just have to emphasize this is a big man. Mm. Like, that is the whole arc of this character and the whole description of this character is he's very tall. And people keep referring to how big he is. The movie's called Big Jim McLean. But his partner is taller than him. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. Oh, God. <laughs> what a simple fix. You just get a guy that's like 5'9". Oh, God. <laughs> You're like, James Arness is massive. Like, he is, like, taller than John Wayne in this movie. And I'm like, what a weird choice to cast someone as his sidekick. And it's not like the sidekick even does that much in the movie other than die and give John Wayne motivation at a certain point. But, like, why would you cast someone who's enormous... <laughs> <laughs> what what do we rename this film then? It's not Big Jim McLean anymore because he's of course uh, Big Mal Baxter. So is he like Mid Jim McLean? Um, less Big Jim McLean. He's he's not small. That's 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 no. if we were starring in the film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, less bit. I'm gonna go Mid Jim McLean. Okay. Yeah. Mid sized Jim McLean. Yeah. Yeah. That's the full version. So yeah, Mid Mid Jim McLean it is. But what about you? Have you got any other things you liked about the film? Um. Well, I mean... (laughs) Uh, Back to you, Scott. I would say I just like some of the character actors that pop up. Like Alan Napier as Sturrock, who's the guy, you know, leading this communist group. He shows up for a few scenes. He's mostly just doing exposition. But, like, he's just a fun character actor to see pop up. He was in, I think, Ministry of Fear, I think? Um, we've tackled him in the past, um, but it was just, it's good to see like a character actor who's reliable because a lot of the people who they put in this movie are awkward and stilted, you know, like poor, um, you know, Dan Liu as the chief of police, like this poor man is struggling through every scene. So when you give me an actor like, you know, Alan Napier, basically just talking gibberish, for an extended period, I'm at least sitting forward because it's an interesting actor. Well, uh, Napier has a couple of uh, spy connections, including the the Third Man stuff like that. So he, he's he's uh, been around, but uh, he is most famous for a, a TV show that you're quite a big fan of. Yeah, Batman. He was Alfred. Mm. That was something that was pointed out on Twitter, but it was also in the Sword in the Stone and Marnie. So yeah, he's uh, he definitely gets about. 
Oh yeah, he did some good stuff. Um, and I will say it's goofy as hell, but I just thought like the kind of the romantic elements that kick off the movie, which are laughable, but they're kind of fun. So, sure. you know, when you have John Wayne be like, so where do you swim? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's, it's when they go out on a date and they walk past the church and she's like, hang on, I need to go praise the Lord for bringing me to you. And he's like, hey, why <laughs> why can't I join you? Huh? Huh? And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, Say your prayers and eat your vitamins, kids. Oh, lordy. <laughs> um, I, I've only got one other thing I liked. Okay. And that is that sort of the travel log aspect to the film. Yeah. There's some great shots of Hawaii. I mean, it, it's all shot there. It makes it look very nice. It, it is in black and white, this film, if you haven't seen it. But even then, I think it still paints a nice picture of, of some of the vistas you catch. It's certainly not, you know, To Catch a Thief, which, again, you mentioned we did on Patreon recently. That's a lot better looking. But, yeah, this is still nice. And, and you know, Hawaii is and was then a, a, a holiday destination for a lot of Americans. Yeah. And, I mean... I was a little spoiled. As you said, we watched To Catch a Thief mere days before watching this one. And that is like the most beautiful travel log ever put to film. But um, this movie, I did appreciate sort of that kitschy early 1950s travel log in Hawaii. Like it was just fun watching them put John Wayne in various Hawaiian locations just to kind of show off the scenery. And it made me wonder if you and I, um, once traveling is a little better, should be doing a big Jim McLean tour through Hawaii. <laughs> Do we need to rough up some locals as well whilst we're at it? I'd prefer not to. <laughs> Let's oppress some minorities. Uh, maybe they could rough us up as payback for this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're coming with our big Jim McLean shirts and they're like, that's the one. Get him. Yeah, yeah. It's it's 68 and 69. Get him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's. Um, I think let's mosey on over to the uh, the dislikes, the quibbles. Yeah, and I mean, I've I've spoken about the plot. It makes no sense. No, I I I don't know how they've managed to to scuff this one up because there's not a lot else this film is hanging its hat on, apart from the communist plot. So you think they would have figured that out, but. It takes like 45 minutes before it even really gives you anything. And then you have this massive exposition dump at the end where the uh, Alan Napier character is kind of pontificating his plan. But even then, after two watches, I could not get it down. And even reading Wikipedia, I was still confused. Yeah, it's compl you wonder if they were like slashing, you know, scenes out of this movie or something like that. Because it's very short. It's, I think, just, just under 90 minutes. Although it sure doesn't feel like it, but it makes me wonder if it, there was originally like a little bit of a longer cut or something like that. Nothing I could find online would indicate that, but it feels like it because it's gibberish. And um, you'd think like they could come up with a way to make it compelling because you have them on the hunt for this guy named Namanka, who is, you know, a communist who has been basically... Um, you know, liquefied by this organization where he's been injected with something to basically give him a complete nervous breakdown. And so, like, a lot of the movie is about tracking where he is and how he ties into all of this, and we have them following leads to, like, his wife, or his ex-wife, I suppose, um, and various other people. To me, it should be very clear, like, how we get from A to B, and they do set up like this group led by Napier early on. So it's not like we have questions as to who could, the responsible party could be. 
So it doesn't seem like it should be difficult to explain how we get from the early clues to John Wayne cracking down on them. But for some reason, it's incredibly confusing. And you have like a sequence where they meet up with this author who I guess is, you know, kind of a bit of an insane patient talking about how he's going to create some sort of weapon that turns all men into replicas of each other and all women into replicas of each other and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, the movie is stopping dead for this character to just speak gibberish, literal gibberish. Mm -hmm. And yet so much of the other spy plot is so confusing that it doesn't feel that much less ridiculous than what he's saying. Well, firstly, I hate the idea that there was ever a longer version of this film. <laughs> well, true. Yeah, please, 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 please. Um, yeah, I, I honestly can't think of how you would fix it apart from maybe getting some uh, rid of some of these um, extra characters, but they're the only minutes of, of fun. Like that character you said where he talks about his invention to to turn all women and men to look the same, and then he has to go get off on his uh, secret jet plane and fly back to Washington to help the president out. Uh, that was just... <laughs> again, I thought I was tripping on LSD when I saw that scene. Um, this lemonade tastes of lemons. Yeah. <laughs> You should definitely use lemons when you make lemonade. It's better than that stuff made with oranges. Like, yeah. What? Isn't that orange juice? <laughs> what? what? I felt I was going down the rabbit hole of insanity just listening to that character because I was like starting to question, like, am I supposed to be taking what this person says seriously? <laughs> and he never comes back. No. He's gone from the film. But yeah. What about what about you? I mean, I have a whole list of, of problems, but what's one of yours? Well, just tied into that spy plot, maybe we can talk about the voiceover because you've got like two different voiceovers going on. And I wonder if it was like they realized how confusing the movie was. And so they added all this voiceover to try to explain what's going on and smooth it over. But it doesn't work because it does feel often very intrusive. And John Wayne movies, there's not. God, are there any with voiceover that are jumping to mind? I can't really recall many where he's speaking over. There may be one out there that someone will maybe remind us of on Twitter, but um, it's not very common. But it also, a lot of his voiceover, as you said, like you have the feverish sequence with the obituary earlier. You have all these ties to this story, The Devil and Daniel Webster. But then there's like, he's. It's, I just wonder if he was trying to pave over this movie and make it sort of comprehensive to an audience. Does it feel like that's what they're trying to do? Maybe, but then they completely missed the mark. Yeah. You'd think if they're doing... I know you said they had to rush it out to beat two other John Wayne films. Maybe that's why they didn't have time to fix it properly. But the 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 dubbing the the dubbing and the voiceover work, because there's also dubbing on some of the characters to sort of change what they're saying, maybe to make the plot make more sense. And it still doesn't help. If anything, it probably confuses it. And some of the, the voiceover work is like aggressive it reminded me of like rorschach in the the watchman yeah i i, yeah. I was looking up some of his uh like monologues like rorschach's journal dog carcass in the alley this morning tired tread on a burst stomach and you just think that's exactly the kind of nonsense he was spewing because half the time it made no sense and had nothing to do with what was going on around him yeah and there are these ties to this story the devil and daniel webster which as I said up front, like it's not a story that I've ever read, but I did read the synopsis. And it's essentially about um, a guy makes a deal with the devil and then realizes that was a bad idea. So gets a lawyer to go up against the, the devil for this man's soul. And the, the uh, lawyer essentially creates a all-American jury 
and follows the tenets of the American judicial system and wins the case through that. And essentially it's, you know, American values defeating the devil. And at the end of the story, the devil agrees to essentially grant, uh, you know, a glimpse into the future. Do you have any questions essentially about something that could happen? And he says, you know, how will the union go? And the devil says, you know, it will be strong and, you know, all will be repaired or whatever further down the road. So, like, it's very much about America conquering the devil. And so this movie opens with quotes from it. It ends with John Wayne citing quotes from this story. And so, essentially, we are aligning the communist threat as the devil here, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole red side of the scare, apart from it being from Russia, I suppose. I, I just... I don't I don't know how to fix any of this even with the the dubbing it it just is a mess. I I I'm scratching my head just thinking about some of the scenes now you said that. Well, it's a project because when we talk about movies that maybe had some issues, movies that were good that we go, "Hey, this part didn't quite work, maybe what's our idea of how to fix it, you know, being <laughs> not being screenwriters ourselves, but here's something that might have worked maybe." This is a project, though, that's just founded in such problematic uh, <laughs> um, origins that I just don't think there is a way to save it. It's a, you know, propaganda film for uh, a, a cause that was very, very damaging. And I don't know that there's a way to shift the angle on this other than just to make the spy plot more comprehensible because at least then it could deliver a basic plot on a somewhat okay level. But otherwise, I, I don't know. See, I, I think you would just strip out the spy plot. I know it would lose us, but I think if you just get rid of that and you get rid of the whole Red Scare thing and you just make it a detective story where you've got these two detectives going to Hawaii to track a murderer or something like that. And then you can have this more like hangout vibe, which is more what you have at the start that you enjoy, that you're just sort of hanging out with Big Jim. Yeah. Um, and less of the men talking in rooms. I mean, I would enjoy that way more of just John Wayne, throw a Hawaiian shirt on him, just wander around Hawaii trying to solve a case. It's kind of a pre, you know, Hawaii Five-0 type of, um, you know, investigator story. I think that could actually be pretty fun. Instead, we have this. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a movie that's insane. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I think is probably worth bringing up in terms of my major quibbles, there's, there's little things after that, but the fact that the... <laughs> The film is designed to be this um, propaganda piece for the Un-American Committee, right? Yeah. But they fail every single time. <laughs> I was really interested to see how you were going to feel about that ending. <laughs> and the start. Yeah. Yeah, like... and <laughs> So, the start... And for those who haven't seen the film, the, the film starts off where they've they've already arrested a couple of suspected... Because they're not proven guilty, they're suspected communists, and both of them plead the fifth. For those who don't know, the Fifth Amendment is the right to, you know, not say anything when accused. Right. Um, we have similar rights here in the UK. I'm sure Canada has a, a similar right as well. Um, and then at the end of the film, they they catch this whole ring of communists, and they that's what the entire film is working towards is bringing these guys in, and and then they go to court and they plead the fifth. And you're left with a scene of uh, of old mid-Jim walking away and saying, oh, gee, I do love our constitution. You know, the American theme is playing in the background somewhere. 
I think there's a boat sailing off with some sailors walking away at the same time, just to really hammer home America. And he's like, I, gee, I love the Constitution, but I, I, I really wish some people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't use it if they're bad guys. Dum dum da dum dum da dum 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 dum. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he talks about how the Constitution is used and abused by those who would do evil and things like that, and uh, yeah, which is entirely <laughs> the point of the Constitution is it's fair fairness and equality to all. Yeah. One nation divisible under God, etc., etc. Yeah, and justice for all. That's the line, right? Yeah. And for all, good and bad. You're completely missing the point of the Constitution, people. Well, that's the thing. You get the sense that, like, this movie, it's basically coming down to John Wayne being like, well, what can you do? And essentially they want the audience to be like, we need to get rid of that. Like, we need to, obviously what this movie is doing is presenting us with hard facts, and they want us to walk out of this movie angry about, you know, what you know, these people are able to do under the Constitution. It's kind of like what newspapers do nowadays, and probably back then too, where they, like, say, you know, oh, Christmas is cancelled this year because you can't teach it in schools. Right. And then the readers of said newspapers will then be like, oh my god, I can't believe we can't teach kids about Christmas anymore. Let's, I don't know, burn books. And it, it just feeds that hate machine. And it's interesting to see that they were still doing that in the 50s. Oh, oh, hell yeah. They were doing it he like heavy, heavy in the 50s. Yeah. There's a lot of movies that are kind of like this. And I've always preferred, because in the 1950s, you get a real birth of, or at least a, a big boom for um, sci-fi films, mm -hmm. like things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It came from outer space. And a lot of these movies are about the Red Scare, but they're doing it through metaphor and ways of often showing how um, how it was a bad thing. And because they're doing it through the guise of sci-fi, they could get these messages through. And so, like, when it comes to 1950s movies that kind of tackle, um, I guess, the themes of the time, I really, really prefer and enjoy the sci-fi films. Yeah, because even the ones that maybe are slightly more heavy-handed, they're not, they're not exactly feeding it to you because there is still an allegory there. Yeah, Invasion of the Body Snatchers could be viewed as... Um, obviously being very scared of communism, but the movie itself is just a really entertaining film that I think is more interesting to talk about academically than Big Jim McLean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone has written their thesis on Big Jim McLean. <laughs> I would like to think so. That would be amazing. I would read it. Um, okay, maybe a small quibble. What's this film's problem with lepers? I don't know. Um, I guess Hawaii was known for its leper colony at the time. I mean, was that on the slogan John... of the <laughs> "Come to Hawaii, <laughs> see the lepers"? Maybe. Um, I don't know. That's really strange. That uh, you have that sequence where he goes to meet with Namanka's uh wife or estranged wife or ex-wife, whatever it was, who's working there. Um, but you have this bit where John Wayne in voiceover is like lepers ever since you know i read the bible i've been scared of lepers and all this sort of stuff and you're like how does this fit into this movie <laughs> it's so strange it i, I mean I, I wrote down a lot of comparisons to 1984 yeah in my notes and i went back and read a little bit of it this afternoon funnily enough and it reminded me of a scene right at the end of the, it's actually the last chapter but not the coda but the last chapter of the film 
uh, after your protagonist has been potentially brainwashed, although that's really left to the reader to decide, he's talking to someone else in the cafe and they're just talking about how they're glad that they were convinced by Big Brother and now they see the light. Uh, but it's written as if they've been like brainwashed completely. Their, their voice has changed. They are a different person. And this, this lady nurse, it's, it's so... <laughs> I, I'm glad I gave up my communist ways. How could I have ever been so blind? She has a line where she refers to it, I believe, as a vast conspiracy to enslave the common man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that feels like exactly someone would say in conversation. <laughs> that old that old vast conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, it's moments like that that are just absolutely insane, right? Like when you watch them, you're like, what? What is going on? How did I wind up watching this movie with my life? How did I end up watching it twice? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> In two days. Oh, I must love it. And I wonder, like, the ending wants the audience to walk out enraged as to what's going on in their country, right? But, like, mm. it's also just from a movie point of view, <laughs> completely unsatisfying. Like, you would walk out being like, what was the point of any of that? It really kind of like undercuts the whole point of the movie in some ways where like you want to tell a John Wayne adventure that people can come and enjoy and walk away with the messages he wants to impart. But at the same time, you're providing a completely unsatisfying movie experience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of the, the quibbles I had is just the fact that, you know, it, there's a certain proportion of, of the audience that will pick up a pitchfork after watching this film. That's fine. It works for them. But the majority of the audience will get to the end, realize that they've plead the fifth and not been punished, and then go, huh. So what's for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. Or be angry. Just be like, what was the point of all that? Why did I sit through this movie? Why did I pay 12 bucks to go to the cinema to watch this? Well, I don't think they paid 12 bucks in those days. <laughs> I don't know. Shillings? It would have been, I'm going to say maybe 75 cents or something. Sure. Yeah. I we, we uh, yeah. I okay. Why did they pay seventy five cents? Or or if they're doing a re a screening of it now? Actually, here's a question: If they screened Big Jim McLean in one of your like classic cinemas around town, would you go watch it? That is an amazing question. Would I go? Um. My initial answer is no, because it's not a good movie, and I would not really care about seeing it again. But like. Maybe the weirdness of the fact they're screening it would draw me. I'd be like, what? Like, why are they doing this? There's so many amazing John Wayne movies I haven't gotten to see on the big screen. Why did they choose this one? <laughs> um, so maybe I would go for that reason. Also, we do have something in Vancouver called Gentleman Hecklers, where it's a group of comedians who, um, you know, basically crack jokes and heckle a movie throughout. Um, so like, maybe I would go to watch them do Big Jim McLean. That would be kind of fun. I'll at them in a post, so we'll we'll try and get them to to cover this film. That would be great. I would I would go to that. We'll get you as a guest gentleman. That's that's my goal. Sure. I also want to also point out when we're talking about in this case a major quibble. Um, the movie's already uh, uncomfortable given you know the politics of the film, but like at the end, what sets John Wayne off is one of the um, communists dropping the N word. And then he starts punching him out. We get the big fist fight. You know, you got to have a fist fight in a John Wayne movie. So, like, um, that's uncomfortable, especially with, you know, some of the um, interviews that have come out in years since with John Wayne and what have you and the way we are 
reckoning with many of the things he said about people, you know, who are African-American. It's like, oh boy. Like, as if this movie wasn't uncomfortable enough, now we got this. It, it's just, you know, it's that whole jingoism thing, you know, it making them the, the bad guys, uh, you know, quote unquote bad guys, the communists, although I'm not a communist, I will point out, um, like be this brash, rude guy is just meant to play on the heartstrings of the audience. That's all it's there for. Yeah. It, it's a it's a silly addition to the to the script. And it also really feels out of the scene because everyone else in that cafe isn't like an intellectual or is put across as an intellectual because this film has this sort of underlying anti-intellectualism thing going on. It, there's a couple of comments here or there where like, university teachers are, are, are like getting into the kids minds and converting them oh better not make them stupid <laughs> stay out of university kids they'll uh, they'll convert you to communism and this guy can feel completely out of place because you know one feel, one thing this film has to concede is by saying the intellectuals are communists then it means the good guys are dumb so why is there a dumb bad guy i have no idea You'd have to ask John Wayne that one. I'll I'll send him a WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can. I I feel like I could talk about this film for hours. Are you are you pitching the next commentary? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. There's a there's a litany of films I would rather watch again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you have any sort of final questions or notes, Cam, on Big Jim? Um, I've got a couple things. Number one, I'll mention the fact that this movie, you know, its big mission name is Operation Pineapple. That's about right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got that note down too. Uh, it, it definitely, uh, well, it, it, it really should be Operation Lemon. Yeah, oh, no kidding. Um, and not with oranges. but um... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this is just really weird, but like, did you notice the music credits in, on this movie? No. It lists three people with the music for the film. And I looked on IMDb. It has a three plus two uncredited. Why were five people involved in the score for this movie? I don't even remember there being a score. I mean, there definitely was one. But I, I remember some whole, like, quote unquote Hawaiian music. You, I suppose you'd call it luau music. Uh, I remember that, but that's about it. So now I'm just confused about whether it was just crediting five people who wrote pieces that are in the movie. I don't know. It's very, or I guess, crediting three, but having two others. I don't know. Really weird credit that jumped out at me. Yeah, that is strange. I mean, maybe one of the people credited is that lady who sings directly into the camera at one point. Um, yeah, I don't think they credited her, unfortunately. And that was uncomfortable. When she started singing to the camera, it was, like, awkward. That's when I thought it was a David Lynch film, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like someone just breaking the fourth wall i was waiting for someone to find a blue key and for me to wake up from the dream um and also speaking of david lynch how did you feel about the awkward performances from people that weren't actors and david lynch likes his intentionally unsettling performances but here they were not intended to be unsettling <laughs> do you mean the the police chief that walked into the room and goes you're under arrest yeah you're coming with me yeah uh, yeah, it it got a laugh out of me. I have to say, I I appreciate them using the the, the sort of you know 
the local police chief and some other people who live locally to be in the film, I probably wouldn't have given them speaking parts. <laughs> it's a little awkward. I mean, House on 92nd Street had some por- uh, performances like that. So this was about on par with that. Now, when we talk about bad actors in House on 92nd Street, we are, of course, not talking about Inspector Briggs, who is the second official Spy Hards mascot after Uramov. The next Redbubble t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and just my final note that I had was the scene where um, James Arness and John Wayne are tapping, I guess, the uh, wiretapping the room of a honeymoon couple. Mm. That was weird. Wow, that's just us before we start the episode, usually. Just the um, voices they're hearing are hilarious, too, where it's like the guy who's like, ah, you're going to wear me out. (laughs) It's like like this nerdy kind of voice, and it's so weird. This is why I thought at times this film was a comedy, especially towards the start. I thought it was like a tongue-in-cheek comedy, and then it got deadly serious as it went on, and and my uh, focus waned. Well, like, could this be a camp classic like Reefer Madness if you didn't have such a boring spy plot? Yeah, you could have fun with it if the, if it wasn't so convoluted. This is what I don't get. The spy plot is both convoluted but deadly simple. Yeah. Like, you somehow can't grasp it, but there really isn't anything to grasp. Because I've read the Wikipedia page, and it's it's one paragraph summed up the spy plot... But I had to read it like six times to be like, I guess this makes sense. Yeah. How did they? I, I don't get how you bungle such a, a, a simple concept of two guys going abroad to catch communists. I have no idea because it is just head scratching. Like, and it's boring. It's so tough to pay attention to the second half of this movie. Absolutely. Um, well, my two final notes. First of all, I was a big, big, big fan of. When Nancy Olsen's character, Nancy, turns to, um, you know, John Plane and says, you know, you remind me of uh, of my dead husband. <laughs> yeah. In so many words. That's such a weird thing to say to a guy you're courting. You remind me of my ex. Hmm. That would, uh, that put me off. I mean, the whole whirlwind romance of these two characters is laughable at best. So when that line dropped, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it for the, uh, you know, the camp value, but uh, it's ridiculous. A weird little thing I picked up about their relationship is it's quite late on when after uh, Mal Baxter has died and he's out hunting the streets and, and roughing up some minorities just to get some information. He comes home and she's cooked dinner for him. Now, bear in mind, she's been in Hawaii for years at this point. OK. She chooses to cook him French fries. Yeah. Like, come on. You're you're in Hawaii. Why are they not eating fish? French fries? Did the cinema audience not understand what salmon was? <laughs> and John Wayne was like, I call them freedom fries. <laughs> and then the, the music starts playing again, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, also, this woman has, like, no ties to anything because, like, John Wayne's going to, you know, go back home and she's just going to head out with him. He's like, don't you have anything here? She's like, nope. I got no reason to stay. She's studying to be a psychologist. She does have a reason to be there. I also found it weird that, like, a lot of the movie revolves around how um, she is working for a doctor who's tied into this whole conspiracy web. And yet you never have a single scene of her and the doctor together. No, and never is there any suspicion that she might be working for him. Nope. Even though she is. 
Yep. Technically. I know, it's weird. It really is. The last note I had was from, you know, fan favourite Madge. Good old Madge. Now, she's out on a date-ish with um, John Plain, Big Jim. And she talks about a Hawaiian saying that means no worries for the rest of your days. And no, it's not Hakuna Matata. It's apparently, and I'm going to butcher this, Ho Manavana Nui. And then she sings it several times. Now, I cannot find a translation of this, the spelling of this. I can only assume it's racist gibberish that John Wayne came up with. Or, yeah, or his team of, like, um, B-level writers. Yeah. Um, weird. That's really weird. That sounds Hawaiian. Ho Manawanawahi. Yeah, sure. Great. The only thing that gives me pause is, like, they did go out of their way to, like, cast, you know, some Hawaiian, like, real people in roles. Like, I mean, you know, obviously the, the police chief. But, like, you also had to have, you know, Hawaiian actors throughout this movie. It seems weird that they wouldn't have that accurate. But it also maybe doesn't shock me at all. Because this is a <laughs> very problematic movie. So, who knows? Well, Papa, I think it's time. We have to find out whether Big Jim McLean is being sent to the leper colony or not. <laughs> yep. Is it making the knock list? Uh, come on, Big Cam, what do you think? Only if I were the ghost of Joseph McCarthy would this make the knock list. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was a very easy answer for you. And after the last 80 minutes of us trashing on this film, I, I, <laughs> I won't beat around the bush. It's a definite no for me. But uh-huh. I do have a follow-up question for you. And this is maybe what I was referring to when I meant the leper colony. Is it making the disavowed list? I think it's a very strong candidate. Because if you're asking me, what do I prefer to watch again? Big Jim McLean or Men in Black International? It's a very easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Here's the question for you before we decide on disavowed. This, this imaginary Vancouver theatre is showing the house on 92nd Street, Big Jim McLean, or one of our dinosaurs is missing, all on the same night, <laughs> at the same time, and you have to go to one of the three. Um, I think that's actually a pretty easy answer, because apparently I am being forced to go to one of these movies. It would be Big Jim McLean, because it's 89 minutes. Well, one of our dinosaurs was was about 89, 90 minutes. Yeah, I liked this, I suppose, more than that, because at least you get, like, you know, the dynamic with um, Nancy Olsen and John Wayne. But uh, I, I guess I would go with this one. Uh, yeah. I think I would choose dinosaurs. That's fair. I don't think it's, like... It's a it's a no win scenario. <laughs> it's it, true that this is the Kobayashi Maru of Spy Hearts. It really is, and I mean, no matter which movie you choose, it's going to be the worst movie-going experience of your year. <laughs> or you turn up and it's a complete riot because everyone's just enjoying it for the campy factor. You never know. Sure, yeah. It's like going to see Rocky Horror and people are just throwing toast at the screen. What are people throwing at the screen for this movie? <laughs> Communists. <laughs> That'll learn them. 
Oh boy. Well, like, go on. I'm trying. We've never had a propaganda film on the uh, disavowed list, have we? No, 92nd Street wasn't as bad as as this. <laughs> yeah, I think when you consider the politics of this one, oh, you, it has to make the disavowed. It has to. Like, I don't even think it's a question. I, I it's a yes from me. Yeah, it, yes for me as well. Cam, disavow that sucker. That uh, that truly does show how the uh, how the union is standing now. <laughs> Indeed, it does. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, there you go, folks. Big Jim McLean certainly isn't making the knock list, and we are sending it directly, first class, to the leper colony that is the disavowed list. Yeah, well earned, well earned, <sighs> well earned. But Cam, before we talk about next week, I want to make a quick mention, as I did earlier on the show, about our Patreon. Yes. First of all, we want to thank everyone that's recently joined the Patreon, especially with our Golden Eye film commentary. It's, a, it's been a blast, and we thank you all for the great feedback. Uh, we've also recently had Jaws the Revenge and Catch a Thief as part of our uh, Agents in the Field series. But uh, yeah, check out the Patreon over at patreon.com slash spyhards, and there'll also be a link down below in the show notes, and we appreciate all of your support. Now, Cam, I think we have a big one next week. What have we got coming up? What could be bigger than Big Jim McLean? Well, how about George Lazenby? He's pretty tall himself. So we are going to tackle Honor Majesty's Secret Service from 1969. It's our third ever Bond. Think about that. We've been running for a year and a half, and this is only the third Bond we've spoken about. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. I mean, going forward, we will have um, Casino Royale from 1967, which also has like something like four other James Bonds in it, so... That number will increase at some point. Not too far off. No, not too far off indeed. But um, I'm very interested to go back to One of Majesty's Secret Service. It's one of those films that's grown on a lot of people. It's now on a lot of people's top five, top ten Bond films. And of course, the most recent No Time to Die really lent a lot on this film. And we'll definitely be talking about that in the discussion. We're actually being joined by one of Bond Twitter's favourites. And it is, of course, Stephen Carty, who will be joining us for the discussion. And also, as a Christmas treat, because you've got to remember, next week is Christmas, we have a bonus interview for you. Cam, who are we talking to? We are going to be talking to John Glenn, who people will know for him having directed several James Bond movies, including The Living Daylight, Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only. But he was an editor on Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So we are going to talk to him about working on that film and just the process of collaborating with Peter Hunt, the director on Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, it was an absolute thrill for us both to sit down with the the one and only John Glenn. He's up there with the heavyweights of the Bond world, like the Martin Campbells. And you know, we decided to make the interview specifically about Honor Majesty's Secret Service to make it more of an accompaniment to the film review. So our Christmas present to you, Spy Hearts listeners, is a double bill of On Her Majesty's first hour review on Tuesday and then on the Friday, on Christmas Eve, our John Glenn interview dropping into your podcast apps. Yes, so Merry Christmas to you all. Ho, 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 seven. (laughs) Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I imagine not for the first time, but if it is, we'd be keen to hear what you thought about it. You can, of course, find out more about The Knocklist at letterbox.com where you can find out the films that did make The Knocklist and then you could also find out the films much like this week 
that made the disavowed list. We are, of course, a proud member of Podbreed and Quite the Thing podcast networks. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, neighbor, how stands the union now? There stands the union, Mr. Webster. There stands our union now.